I just want to take a moment, you know, City Church, one of the things about us is that we're, we, uh, we consider ourselves family uh, here, and so we do some things that you might not see uh, very often from the platform, and one of those things is we recognize people, and today is Lorena's birthday, and Lorena is up here, so be sure to give Lorena a big happy birthday uh, before uh, you leave today. Uh, we uh, are blessed to have families like hers in the church that call City Church home. So we are going to be talking about the Christmas story today, and I'm kind of uh, excited about this. You may not know this, but City, I mean, but uh, Christmas is one of is is my favorite time of year. Uh, I I get pumped for it, and it drives my kids crazy because like. Like the, the older I get, I would, I would start, the thing that drives them crazy is that the older I get, the earlier I want to start, right? Like, I mean, the moment that we're packing up Treat Street outside, in my mind, I'm like, we could do two months of Christmas right now. It could happen. And I love Thanksgiving, but it could just be like, we could change the name to pre-Christmas and it would still be a great time to get together. So, but I have to restrain myself because uh, I'm technically not allowed to start until the day after Thanksgiving. So, uh, but celebrating Christmas is a really good thing. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we receive it as being a celebration of Christ's triumphant entry into the world right, that Jesus came. And so I'm going to kind of break that down today, hopefully, in a way that if you are uh, new to the faith, uh, an unbeliever, or maybe you've been in church your whole life, it will be a really good perspective and thought-provoking. So uh, if we could, can we go ahead and stand for the reading of the Word? We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, taking a, a pause from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read beginning here in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered 
at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are thankful to be called your own. I pray that as we look at the Word today, that it would bear evidence to our hearts, to our spirits, to our minds, the reality of who you are and the beauty of your love for us. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, we're just going to dive right into the content uh, right here in Luke chapter 2, this first verse. I want to talk about uh, something that, 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 uh, the, the, that the biblical writers do that you, you don't find when you are looking at other religious texts, okay? Uh, one of the things that's really unique to Scripture and I think is really powerful is the amount of history that is included in the text, so these, these guys are not just writing uh, proverbs like, hey, here's a feel-good story for you, right? Um, and, and here's how you can live your life. They're, they're tethering their story to historic fact. And by doing that, right, by including historic characters and historic events, one of the things that they are doing is they are opening themselves up to be challenged on the integrity of what they're saying, Right? Because you know that as soon as we begin to look at historical events, you're going to have those who are in an effort to disprove the text. What they're going to do is they're going to try to look at what happened historically and see if that truth is being told there. Because if they can somehow uh, uh, prove that the history the history of the text is wrong, then they can kind of disavow the entire thing. And, and, and what Luke is doing is Luke is making a connection here for us to history, but for the readers to, a, to an event that would have really been uh, uh, relevant to them. They would have had great understanding of exactly what it meant. So Caesar Augustus is the leader of, of the Roman Empire at this time, right? Uh, he presents himself as being a god. In fact, he gave himself the title son of God. Uh, he would travel around and he would bring areas in, uh, into a place of starvation where people were, were, were just begging for food. And then he would come in and do what was called a parade of bread. And so he would come and he would bring bread and they would throw bread to the people and he would declare that he was the bread of life, right? So, so this is happening. This is the actual ruler, the actual king, and there is a, a counter-narrative, another story happening coming from a, a poor uh, uh, little family that another king is coming, right? And what, what Caesar might declare in the physical and might provide in the physical, this, this, this new king is going to do beyond the physical. And so as, as a ruler, how is it that you rule from 3,000 miles away, right? Uh, Jerusalem all the way back to Rome was a, a, a roughly a 3,000-mile journey. So how is it that you have control over all this territory in a time where you don't have motor vehicles, you don't have flight, you don't have cell phones, internet for communication, right? What you do is you enlist subordinates, 
right? You find people who on, of their own accord are not going to amount to anything, and you tell them, hey, if you will serve me, then I will give you wealth that you would not otherwise have. I will provide you a life that you would not otherwise, otherwise not have. And so you kind of create an entourage, right? You create your own fanboy system. And so you have all of these governors and kings and rulers that are being set into place over territories uh, throughout the land, and they are going to be for the most part, very faithful to whoever's in charge because without that person, they have nothing. They go back to being fishermen. They go back to being hunters and scavengers, and they want to live this, this royal life, right? And the truth is that as long as uh, they are doing their job well, they don't even really interact with the Caesar. They don't interact with their leader, and so they, in essence, kind of rule their own kingdom. Uh, and, and the man that is put in charge over Israel, his name is Herod. He is half Israeli and half Edomite. Okay, and so he is put in charge, and in 20, I mean 37 BC, he besieges Jerusalem, and when he does, he claims that his victory was the will of God, right? So he says, I'm a great ruler, I am a great leader, God has appointed me to be over Israel, and he comes in with the intent of leaving no woman or child alive. Think about that tagline, right, as you're coming in. You're already going to war. You're in a society where killing, killing men is not a big thing. But your tagline is to not even leave the women and the children alive. So as he comes in, it's a, it's a complete blood fest, right? And he makes this declaration, as do many of the leaders of that day, that they are sovereign and walking in the will of God. What he doesn't mention in his little narrative is that he had 30,000 soldiers and 6,000 cavalry fighting against people who had picks and shovels, right? And so it's really difficult to say, man, that seems like God was on your side when you have that type of force coming in to uh, attack a group of people who make their living largely by fishing and creating uh, products and trying to sell just enough to survive. And it says here that it's during this time when the world is ruled by this one man, Augustus, and he has all these leaders in charge, that there should be a time when people are to be registered. What does that mean? It means to write or to enroll. It was a census. They had to go, they had to report in, and this was a, a, a time of gathering information throughout the land. Uh, Luke goes on and says that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we don't know a lot about uh, Quirinius, but we do know that he was a, a tax officiate under Augustus before he was ever put into any type of major leadership role. And so there is a span of time where people know who he is before he even becomes a governor, before he becomes a logistical leader for Caesar. Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, this is another really interesting thing, because if you think about a census, right, it would just make sense that you would fill out your census information right where you're at. We do that today, and when we look at historical documents, we find that the majority of the Roman Empire actually did that. Wherever you were at, that's where you went and filled out your census. 
There were two primary reasons for this registration for this census. One was to build an army. They needed a list of all of the men so that they knew where they were and how to call on them. And secondly, to identify your tax base. You wanted to know exactly how many people you could tax, what type of living they were making, so that you knew whether or not, one, you were getting enough tax, and two, whether or not you could increase tax. Now, the Jews were a unique group of people inside of the Roman Empire, right? Um, They had this odd favor. And when you go back and you look at the historical documents, there were many agreements made between the Roman Empire and Israel. They were allowed to practice many of their customs and one of the things that they were exempt from was being in the army. And so the, the Jews were not ever called and enlisted to be in the army. So when they were going for registration for census, it was exclusively for tax purposes. Now, the other thing is, is that as the this, as this census was being put together, it created a, a, a ledger that showed where people lived. In essence, this is where you are from. And one of the things that was also agreed upon for the Jews was that the Jews were allowed to travel to their hometowns as a way of protecting their heritage. You see, lineage was a really big thing to them. God had instilled this in them. Why? Because what we're able to get inside of Scripture is a lineage that goes, that dates from Adam, right, all the way through to Jesus's birth. We're able to see how the bloodline had been traced all the way back to the beginning, right? So this was really important. And so one of the agreements that was made, right, this was, this was the Jews asking for this, They were asking, can we please maintain, right, to be a part of our father's homes, right? We have a land. Right now, I'm living somewhere else to provide for my family, to be able to sustain myself, but I am of the tribe of this, and this is my family, and I want to go back to that place, and that's where I want to be registered, and so they were allowed to do that. Again, these are really interesting tidbits to be added into a text, right, that is to be religious, and so if you, if you just are processing, right, and you're thinking to yourself like, well, you know, uh, what, what, what good is religion in the world? And then you begin to think, well, how, uh, uh, how accurate can some of these stories be? The writers of the New Testament are willing to engage in that conversation. And so they're willing to present the story in a way that you can go back and fact check. All right. Very radically different than the way other religious documents are presented and ultimately preserved. Number, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Luke now is moving from this historical perspective to a prophetic perspective. So now I'm telling you that here's what the world looked like at the time that Jesus comes on the scene. And now before we get into any more of the story, if you've been, if you've been critiquing the, the text, then you're also going to know that there are a number of prophecies that were, that were foretold, right, hundreds of years ago about the Messiah. Now, Historically, let's go back here just for a moment. I just want to kind of weight some of this down. The, 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 the world, as far as is, Israel was concerned, right, was against them, and they were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for a king that would rise up and basically become the ruler of the world. That was the way that they interpreted these prophecies, okay? So you have all of these uh, prophecies for what is to come. They are kind of 
littered through the Old Testament. And so what does Luke do? Luke wants to address the fact that this story not only is relevant historically, but it meets the criteria of what is prophetic. One of those being that he would come in the city of David, 1 Samuel 17, 12, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, that he would be of the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. And so there's a prophetic nature that Luke is establishing here, right? Just, I just want you to appreciate this for a moment, right? Luke is not just telling a story. He's not an author that's sitting down and going, well, you know, these were my interactions and I'm just going to kind of put some things down. Like you've got to think about that, like, think about a really complex board game, right? Okay? Knowing all the rules is difficult, right? It's really difficult to understand and know all those rules, even in simple games. How many times, right, have you been playing Uno with somebody, and you play it one way, they play it a different way, and all of a sudden you've got to go back to the rule book to see what's going on, right? Okay? We're not talking about a little bifold pamphlet here. Okay, we're talking about thousands of pages of text that are not easily accessible, right? It's not like they all carry their little pocket New Testament in their, in their, you know, around with them and they're looking at them. So this was, this was great effort to know these things, right? To know the Word in such a way that you know that the Messiah that you're looking for has been prophetically proclaimed and here are these specific points. And so Luke is writing a very intricate document here. There is a lot of detail, right? And, and, and that detail is stuff that we can go back and look at. And so there is this, this prophetic nature to what is taking place. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. The word betrothed in the Greek, it means to ask in marriage. So, so they were engaged. They were not yet married, right? And, and this, is, this all goes to the nature of the fact that Mary was supernaturally impregnated. Supernaturally. Now, Jesus being born of a virgin is one of those things that uh, today the argument gets made, well, that's just, you know, that's the same as a lot of religious texts. What's interesting about the religious texts that are mentioned is that the majority, well, actually all of those religious texts, none of them mention a virgin birth in their original documents, right? Take Buddhism, for instance. When you go back to the oldest documents, there's nothing about a virgin birth. But as time goes on, it is ascribed to the story, right? The story is twisted. It is manipulated a little bit. This is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and they are claiming it right here, right now. And, and just, like, if you're a person who really struggles with, like, the authority and the integrity of Scripture, I, I would really challenge you to go and look into the, the preservation of the document we call the Bible, right? I mean, you are talking about a book unlike any that you have access to okay, in the way that it has been preserved, in the way that it has been scrutinized by scholars. This is not just, you know, a, a, a book that, that every few years gets a revision, right? Well, we're just modernizing it. Let me tell you, when you look at history books that have been revised and made modern, what you find is manipulation and changing of history. But when you go and you take a copy of Scripture and you go and compare it to 2,000 years ago, and you go and compare it to the, 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 
the papyrus and all the different scrolls that we find from even before the birth of Christ, you're going to find there is a real consistent nature to what is being uh, uh, described inside of the text. And so this is a consistent part of the narrative. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, right? And I just want to say this. This, this was uh, something that would have been very difficult to navigate in their society, right? Okay? Um, and, and I think that it would be something that would be difficult to navigate in society today. And just, just as, a, as a moment of pause, right? We should be slow to cast judgment, okay? Right? I mean, you just think about this. Like, God was at work in this situation, okay? And, and God doesn't have to be at work in the way that something is supernatural when somebody falls or is in sin. But, man, we can extend grace, right? Okay? I tell people all the time when they're navigating uh, sin in their lives, right, the, thing, the only thing that, that really sets a, a sinners apart, right, is repentance, Okay, and so if somebody has a heart of repentance, if somebody says, "Man, I really messed this thing up. I'm gonna make it right. I'm gonna," you know, that 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 is that is a good place to be, right? And and so a lot of people though just cast judgment. A lot of people just look on a situation and go, "Oh, they're good for nothing." And I promise you, that's exactly what's happening right here. Uh, uh, Mary and Joseph are not married, and Mary is pregnant. And they're going back to be with family, right? You know, they're, they're, right, they're coming back into town, and you know that they're having the conversation on the way, that they're going to have to have a conversation with moms and dads and aunts and uncles, that an angel showed up, and then those people are going to be like, yeah, whatever, you're crazy, right? But think about this, right? You're crazy, but I'm going to go to the temple on Saturday and praise God because I believe He does supernatural. But when supernatural happens in my life, that's not real. You know what I'm saying? And yet they're walking this thing out. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So here's what we know. The date was determined and known by God, okay? There were a lot of things that were lining up. Uh, we know that the universe and the stars in the sky, the moon and sky, all of those things, they operate as signs, right? They're set into motion. Uh, there are... Uh, there's computer software where you can go and you can type in a date and it will tell you exactly what the constellations look like at your coordinates on that date, right? We know what it'll look like in the future. We know where they were in the past, right? So we know that there's a movement. And so in order for certain things to happen, right, God set those things into motion from the beginning of time. Now, there was a time, there was a date that was known, it was determined by God, but we don't know what that date was, okay? That is, a, that is a fair statement to be made. We don't know what that date was because the biblical text doesn't tell us that he was born on this date. First of all, they're using a lunar calendar. We use a Gregorian calendar. So in general, it just, it, it would be even a debate then, okay? Uh, even if we had an exact day, but we don't know. So what about December 25th? Well, here's the thing. I, I get inundated uh, from time to time with people who, who have a problem with Christmas. And, and if this is you, hear me out for a moment because they've watched a YouTube video or a series of videos where they say it's really a pagan holiday and it's just a pagan thing and we're just worshiping the sun god. And, and, and here's the thing, right? They... 
in the third century, they were already, uh, there were already people who were trying to pinpoint the date to be December 25th. And by the fourth century, the church fathers were teaching, right? So we have, we have writings from the fourth century of them teaching that they thought it was December 25th. And so this would be the date that they would celebrate the birth of Christ. So this is not something that in the, you know, 15th or 16th century, like a bunch of like, you know, devil worshipers said, how do we trick the church? We'll take and hijack Christmas, right? Now, are, were there, are there winter solstices and other things that fall on December 25th in other cultures? Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't matter what day of the year we land on for Jesus' birth, there's going to be something out there happening on that day. Okay, and so the date of December 25th is one that is, it, it has some history to it. Now, do I think that it was December 25th? I have no clue, right? I'm not here to tell you it was December 25th or it wasn't December 25th, but I'm going to tell you that if we're okay with celebrating the birth of our little children and saying happy birthday and telling people, man, I'm so excited that they were born, I'm so excited that they're here, that I would say that there is nothing wrong with us being preparing or preparing in our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Because we value life, we value the sanctity of life. And Jesus came and Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins. So I celebrate him coming. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. All right, so firstborn just meaning uh, eldest, meaning the oldest. So this is her first child. Uh, and it says here that uh, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Uh, the 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 significance of that is that that was a mark of poverty, okay? So if somebody had money, then they would have had clothes for their baby. They would have put some type of ceremonial outfit on their child or something along those lines. But those who were poor literally took the cloths that they had. And basically, if you can imagine like uh, taking your bed sheets and tying them together so you can get down the, the window, they would tie whatever little bit of cloths they had together to make uh, this like rope thing that they would then wrap the baby up really tight and compressed. And so that's what the swaddling cloths were. And then they laid him in a manger, okay? And this is significant here. What was a manger in the Greek? It is a feeding trough or a stall, okay? It is uh, uh, sometimes in, the Greek, in Greek writing, a manger would just be the stall in which the feeding trough was. But the majority of the time that the word manger was used, it was quite literally the device that animals ate out of. And that would make sense because it is within the stall the one item that would most uh, look like something that you would set a child in. And then it uses this word in. This is not like the Holiday Inn or the Hampton Inn or a fancy hotel, okay? Uh, this is a lodging place. It's literally what it means. Most likely, this was uh, coming back to family, and they, the family home had family coming from all over because all of the descendants came together for the registration. And so, it's not like they showed up and had less money than other people, so they couldn't rent a room. And it's not like they showed up and they were just a little bit late and all the rooms were sold out, right? That's very like 
today thinking. No, they just showed up and the family was doing what they could to make space for everybody. And, and I think a lot of us can get that, right? A lot of us can get like having a ton of people at our house and just trying to figure out where do we put people, you know? And so using the stable, using this, this underneath of the house, okay, uh, was the perfect way to do that. And so there were probably beds made up in there from the very beginning, verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, this is really interesting. Jewish tradition puts this region as Beth Zur, the same place David received his calling. So the Jews teach, right, uh, those that were followers of Christ immediately after his birth, that the shepherds that came to the manger were actually tending to their flock on the same hills that David was tending to the flock when he received his calling to become king, right? Really a fascinating thought if you think about it. And then it says that they were keeping watch over their flock by night. So this becomes the argument uh, that is used to kind of debunk December 25th as a possible date. Uh, and then to put it into springtime. I've heard this. It makes sense to me logically, but I, I, I saw one commentator breaking down that uh, a few things. First of all, uh, even to this day, shepherds,